uh, some of the difficulties uh, that we're having. Hopefully these issues will be resolved uh, uh, pretty quickly. Uh, we're grateful if you're uh, visiting with us. We're appreciative that you've decided to worship uh, with us. We do invite you back in any opportunity that you have. You certainly are our honored guests. And if you have any questions or anything uh, that concerns you about anything that you have seen or heard today, uh, please reach out. I know anybody here would be happy and willing to try to answer those questions for you. You know, when we think about it, there's a lot of things in life that you and I would consider to be maybe quote-unquote uh, great, aren't there? You know, last week we had an opportunity to watch the Super Bowl. We watched a lot of uh, what we might call great plays, right, made by uh, great players. Uh, a lot of uh, great things happened in that game. If you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan, it was a great outcome for you, wasn't it? There was uh, some well, I guess okay officiating if you want to look at it that way. Uh, but we use the word great in a lot of different ways, don't we? We had an opportunity to get together with some friends uh, last Sunday night to watch the game. We had a great time. We ate great food. We talk about the word great uh, in a lot of different instances, in a lot of different areas, and in a lot of different ways as it pertains to the word great. But sometimes when we talk about the word great, some things perhaps are not really that quote-unquote great, but we still use the word anyway, don't we? The word great has, I think, in, in some sense, maybe lost its meaning. We use it so flippantly and in so many ways, sometimes it's lost its full meaning of what the word great really, really means. But you and I know that as it comes to us, when we talk about things from a spiritual aspect, certainly there are great things about being Christians, aren't there? The fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth. The fact that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. The fact that He gave His life on the cross as a way of salvation for us so that one day we can have a hope of a home in heaven with God. That certainly is what we would consider to be truly great, isn't it? But what's also great, as you and I study throughout the New Testament, is the commission that Jesus laid before us, laid before the feet of His disciples in Matthew chapter 28, right before Jesus left this earth. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28 that all authority had been given to Him. And He told them to go therefore and to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them there in verse 20, to reserve all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. What is so great about the Great Commission? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we call it great? What is so great about this great commission that we read about here in Matthew chapter 28? Why care about it? Why read it? Why study it? Why do you and I as New Testament Christians strive to make this something that we make a part of our every single uh, everyday lives? Why do we care so much about this commission that Jesus has laid before us? As you and I are continuing this year to focus on uh, our mission statement here at Arrowwind Oak, the idea of strengthening our families and influencing our communities by embodying the truth in love. As we're talking and thinking this morning about more so the aspect of our communities and how you and I can be a great influence on them. How can you and I be better? How can we improve this particular aspect of our lives? How can we be better when it comes to answering this call laid out here by Jesus Christ that we consider to be the Great Commission. You see, when we understand what the Great Commission is and many different aspects about it, then we can truly understand why it truly is so great. There's a couple of things I want to point out uh, this morning that talk about why the Great Commission is so great, why it truly is great, why we can call it great. And then from then, I will leave each of you with a question, each of us, myself included, with a question that we did answer ourselves, and then the lesson will be yours. Here's number one. Why is the Great Commission so great? Well, it's great, number one, because of the source of the Great Commission. 
When you get into Matthew chapter 28, as you're beginning your reading there, we know that Jesus has already been crucified. You go back into chapter 27 there at the end of that, we understand everything that's taking place. Jesus has died. He's been buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He's been in there for three days, and now He's rising, conquering death, able to walk again with, uh, in life here on this earth. He then began to appear to different people. And you read that there at the beginning of Matthew chapter 28. He's appearing to the women. He's appearing then to the disciples. And he gets ready right at the very end of this. He's getting ready to leave this earth. He's getting ready to ascend back into heaven. You read that in Acts chapter 1. And what he does before he leaves is he leaves these last minute instructions, I guess we could call them, for his disciples. Some very, last, some very important last minute instructions that are important for them to understand and to make sure that they implement in their lives. And that is what we have penned by Matthew, obviously through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what we consider to be the Great Commission. When we talk about the source of the Great Commission, you and I understand that it is Jesus Christ, right? We understand that the source of this Great Commission is Jesus Christ Himself, the very Son of God. We're talking about the second person of the Godhead. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the one who would come into this world to be born of a virgin that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. We're talking about the one who would come to live a perfect life while He was here on this earth, to do no sin despite being tempted, despite having gone through everything that we've ever had to go through, First Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 and ultimately the one who would give his life for all of mankind, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. All of this wrapping up together to show us who the source of the Great Commission really is. And because of who he is, I suppose, in all reality, we could say that everything Jesus said was great. Not just this commission that he left for us here in Matthew chapter 28. Every command that Jesus ever spoke, every promise, every question, every response to anything that was ever said to him, all of it, was great simply because of who Jesus was and who Jesus is today. When we look at the source or think about the source of the Great Commission, we understand that Jesus Christ is the source of a great many other things, don't we? We understand that He's the source of our blessings. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Joey talked about that last week, talking about all the spiritual blessings that we're able to enjoy by being in Christ. We understand that He's the source of our peace, John 14 and verse 27. We understand that he's the source of love, John chapter 5 and verse, or chapter 15 and verse 13. He's the source of anything and everything that is good. And we understand that he too is the same one who is the source of the Great Commission. Because he's the source of the Great Commission, it ought to be something that grabs our attention, shouldn't it? It ought to be something that makes us think twice about whether or not we are implementing this into our everyday lives. It ought to be something that we take very seriously. It ought to be something uh, that we consider to be a priority, a top priority in our lives, along with all the other commands that Jesus Christ has laid out for us. You know, the Bible classes that we're going to, like the one that Joey's teaching on Wednesday nights, talking about uh, personal evangelism, how to have Bible studies uh, with other people. It, they are so pertinent because in our minds, I think sometimes maybe we forget to, that we are supposed to be evangelistically minded. Because in our minds, I think sometimes uh, we forget that we're, maybe we're supposed to be doing everything that Jesus has commanded us to do, the things that are maybe more difficult, like personal evangelism. Maybe we tend to think we don't really need to do those things as much. Sometimes we forget that we're supposed to point people to the source, that being Jesus Christ. Why is the commission so great? Because the source is so great. Here's number two. Why is the great commission so great? Because the substance of the great commission is so great. Look, I could tell you story after story, time after time, of individuals that I have known of or individuals that I've talked to, 
um, growing up in, in ministry, my dad is a minister. I, I've, I've grown up seeing this all my life of people, individual after individual, who have opened the door, who have allowed sin to creep into their lives, and who are currently having to pay or having to deal with the consequences of their sinful actions. Things like adultery, things like drugs and alcohol, things like pornography, things like homosexuality. Time and time and time again, we see how horrible sin truly is and the destructive nature that it brings about. How it separates us from God and how it strips away one's hope for a home in heaven with God one day. And yet for so many people, namely those in the world, they can't see that, can they? They can't see the terrible consequences or the terrible nature that sin brings about. And what they only see, at least in their minds, is the momentary, right? That which is right in front of them. The only thing they can see is the quote-unquote pleasure that it brings them right in that moment. But they can't see further down the road. Someone once said, and I, it's always stuck with me, that sin is a lot like credit. You enjoy it now, but you have to do what? You pay for it later. That's how sin is, isn't it? Maybe it brings you a momentary moment, just a small a moment of pleasure, something that makes you feel good and makes you feel great. But then you have to deal with it afterwards, don't you? You then have to deal with the consequences, both physical and spiritually speaking. You commit sin, and it may be, quote, unquote, wonderful, but you're going to have to answer for it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, the apostle Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, said, we lost all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, each one answering uh, the things done in the body according to that which he has done, whether it be good or bad, if you don't take care of sin in this life, then I promise you it's going to take care of you in the next life. You see, sin ruins everything, doesn't it? Sin ruins everything. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, you talk about Adam and Eve. Sin ruined everything for them, didn't it? It got them kicked out of the most perfect place. And they then had to endure hardship. They then had to endure pain and troubles and strife. It ruined Moses' opportunity. He had a chance to enter the promised land, didn't it? Because of sin. Because he disobeyed God, disobeyed a direct command, rebelled against him. And God said, you don't get to enter the promised land. Certainly a goal that Moses had in his mind to try to get to. He was leading the people all the way from Egypt up to this point. Now, surely that was where he wanted to go. And it was stripped away because of sin, just like that. It ruined the children of Israel. And we've talked about that time and time again uh, in this quarter as we've gone over the Old Testament, how it sent them time and time again into a vicious cycle of leaving God and then always clawing their way back all the way up even to you and I today. Sin ruins everything, doesn't it? You see, because of sin, atonement was needed. Something had to be done, that being the sacrifice and the death of Jesus Christ. We needed someone to give their lives a perfect life, unblemished blood, so that you and I could have a hope of a home in heaven, so that we could have a hope of having our sins washed away. John chapter 1 and verse 29, the Bible says that John saw Jesus coming toward him, and what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God, which does what? Which takes away the sin of the world. This, brothers and sisters, is the message, the substance of the Great Commission. The fact that you and I have sin in our lives, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, the fact that that sin that we commit separates us from God, Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. The fact that our sin puts us in a place of being deserving of death, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. And that because of that, we would be living lives with no hope, no direction, no purpose. There would be no point to what we do. That's the underlying message of the Great Commission, isn't it? The fact that we are all without hope, that there is nothing for us, that we are in dire need of being saved, that's what the Great Commission is telling us. But yet, that's also not all the Great Commission tells us, is it? 
because you and I understand that it is God, God the Father, who has created a way for us to be able to come back to him through his provided forgiveness, through his mercy, through his grace, you and I have an opportunity to answer the gospel call, don't we? We have an opportunity to have hope in our lives because of what God and his son Jesus Christ have done for us. That's what the substance of the Great Commission is all about. That's the message of the Great Commission. It's an urgent plea to you and I as Christians, as individuals who have already answered the gospel call to take that soul-saving message, the antidote to the sin problem that plagues our world, to take that call to this world who so desperately needs it and to answer their call to willingly submit their lives to Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he's ending this letter really on a high note. If you think about the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, really Paul just talks about a lot of things that are not good among the nature of the church there. There's been division, there's been struggle, there's been strife, there's been fighting. But when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he ends this entire letter talking about something great, something wonderful. Notice what he says here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning of verse 1. Moreover, brethren, he says, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You see, the crux of the matter, as we're talking about the Great Commission, the substance of what this is all truly about, the crux of the matter is that Jesus died, Jesus rose again, he conquered death, he ascended back into heaven, and because of that has opened this door, this opportunity for you and I as individuals to be able to answer that call, to obey the gospel, and to live in submission to his will, by which you are saved. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 that the gospel is that which has the power to save. Brothers and sisters, that's the substance of the gospel, isn't it? That's the message. That's the substance of the Great Commission, the message that you and I are supposed to be taking to our world every single day. That's what the substance is. Number three, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the supremacy. Of the, uh, of the Great Commission, the supremacy of the Great Commission. When I look at the life of the Apostle Paul, time and time again, we know that Paul demonstrated how he himself in his life saw the supreme nature of Jesus Christ himself, how he saw the supreme or the superior nature of the message that he as an individual was supposed to be taking to the entire world. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through who? But through me, Jesus Christ says. He's stating, he's showing the singularity of himself, the singular way to get to the Father. He's showcasing his supreme nature, isn't he? Paul, knowing that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, we talked about that just a second ago, but Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power to save, not in anything else. Over and over and over, Paul showed the singularity and the supreme nature of the gospel. You think about Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul's writing to the church at Galatia, and he is, he is shocked. He is confused. He doesn't understand how they've gotten to this point. Notice what he says here, beginning in verse 6, Galatians chapter 1. He says, I marvel. I'm, I'm, I'm astonished. I'm amazed, he says, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you to, in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel. 
But then notice what he says, verse 8. But if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed, verse 9. So, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. Paul, beginning his letter to the Galatian brethren, really in such a bold fashion, in such a confident way, he says, I marvel, I'm astonished, I'm amazed, I'm shocked that you're at this point that you are at. Paul says, I'm dumbfounded. It doesn't make any sense to me that you would even consider thinking that there's another message out there. Paul had been with these brethren before. In fact, if you go to chapter 4 and you notice verse 15, he said, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. Paul had a relationship with these brethren. He had been teaching and preaching the gospel. They knew what they were supposed to do. They knew what they were supposed to obey. And yet they were turning away from the supremacy of the gospel message. And in doing so, they were turning away to something that was inferior. They were turning away to something that was, quote unquote, another gospel. But what does Paul say? He says, it's not another. It's not actually another message. You might think you've got another gospel, Paul says. You might think you've got another message that you need to listen. He says, but you don't because the gospel reigns supreme. And so Paul is so serious about this. In fact, he says in verse 8 that he says, if someone, including himself, were to preach anything contrary to that, he would be cursed. He would be in a very bad situation if he were to teach or preach anything different from that of the one and only gospel. But you see, what's unfortunate is that people take the gospel, don't they? And they twist it. They, they, they pervert it. They torture it. And they make it fit their lives. They take things out. They add things in. They make the gospel mold to their wants, to their wishes, to their desires that they have in life. And for one to do that is for one to condemn themselves in their soul. Notice what the Bible said in Revelation chapter 22, beginning of verse 18. The Bible says, For I testify to, any, to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add him the plagues that are written in this book, verse 19. And if anyone takes away from the words of, this book of, of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. For you and I to look at the supremacy of the gospel, for us to look at the Great Commission, understanding what it's all about, understanding its supreme nature, and to think that you and I could teach or preach anything else, to teach or preach anything that brings us pleasure, that, that makes us feel good, is to do that which is strictly forbidden in the message of the gospel. You and I have to understand first and foremost that if we are to successfully, successfully and faithfully obey the Great Commission in taking the good news to the entire world, you and I must first obey the gospel in every single aspect of our lives, in all facets and in all areas, not taking away, not adding to, then and only then, can we be successful in influencing our communities? You see, we do this ultimately because we want to glorify God, don't we? We don't do it to glorify ourselves. We don't do it to bring any pleasure or fame or pomp to our own name, do we? Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, continuing in that passage that Paul was writing, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? Or if I still pleased men, he said, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Sure, we could get a lot of people through these doors, couldn't we? if we preached a message that they only wanted to hear. Why do you, why do you think when you look at these community churches and they have, they have arenas filled with thousands of people, why is that? Why, do they, why are they able to gain such a great audience? Because they teach a different 
gospel, quote-unquote. They teach a different message, one that is contrary to the singular and supreme nature of the Great Commission that you and I are supposed to be taking to this entire world. Paul talked to Timothy about this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, right after having implored him to faithfully and to boldly proclaim the gospel, he says in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. He says, But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, having, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. You see, when we talk about the Great Commission, it's all about obeying and glorifying God. Not ourselves, isn't it? As Christians, you and I have a responsibility to hold true to the supreme nature of the gospel. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to go forth and to proclaim and to teach the supreme and singular Great Commission that we read about in Matthew chapter 28. Here's number four. What do you think about the scope of the Great Commission? And that being what makes the Great Commission so great. And this is an idea that we've touched on, on several times, so we won't spend much time on it. We've talked about this several times just in my short time here uh, with, with you all. When we talk about the scope of something, we're talking about the extent of how far something reaches, aren't we? We're talking about uh, how far or the amount of which an area is able to reach. And so when we're talking about the scope of the Great Commission, why the scope of it is what makes it so great, we're understanding that the scope of the Great Commission is inclusive of every single person in our entire world. That's what makes it so great, isn't it? The fact that it's not discriminatory, the fact that the Great Commission is not partial, the fact that it hasn't chosen some and then not chosen others. You see, that's not the message of the gospel. That's not what is involved in the Great Commission. And that's because of the source behind the Great Commission. We talked about earlier, talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not partial. God is not partial, not discriminatory as it concerns the scope of the gospel. You see, if you think about it, it really wouldn't be so great, would it? If there were some people who were called by the gospel and some people who got left out. Because for the people who got left out, it wouldn't really be that great for them, would it? It wouldn't be great because they wouldn't have an opportunity to obey the gospel. And yet you and I know, based off of our study of the word of God, that the gospel truly is for all. And within this great commission here in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus enforces this thought, when he tells his disciples that they are to go and to take the gospel to who? To all nations, fully encompassing every single person then and every single person now. You see, you and I need to be very careful. You know, we don't slip into this mindset of thinking that, that some people uh, are not worthy of the gospel. Maybe some people aren't worthy of our time. Maybe we think they're not good enough for the gospel. Perhaps they've done something too bad or too evil or too wicked or too sinful, and we think they can't come back from that. Why even bother teaching them? Because when you and I have that mindset, we bring down the soul-saving gospel. We bring down the power that the gospel possesses. And if we truly begin to do that, then we begin to be like the Jews in the first century and their attitude towards the Gentiles. If we're going to make an impact on our communities, boy, we'd better have an open mind as to who the Great Commission is for. Here's number five. The Great Commission is great because it's special. But it's special in a certain and in a specific way. Yes, it's special in regards to, to everything that it talks about to the fact that it was Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, the fact that, uh, that we can point someone to him. It's special because we might have an opportunity of playing just a small part in trying to help someone achieve becoming a Christian 
and being added to the body of Christ. Yes, it's special in all of those ways. But it's also special in that there is a promise made within the Great Commission and how that is what makes it so great. At the very end of it, what promise does Jesus leave? Once someone has obeyed, someone has submitted, faithfully started serving and living for Jesus, Jesus, what does he say? He says, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now, this quarter, we've talked all about the Old Testament, haven't we? We've talked all about uh, from the very beginning all the way up to the point where Jesus Christ is about to come into this world. So many, so many different uh, things we've been able to cover. And I say all of that to say this, that there is a profound theme or a profound lesson that runs all the way through, and that is this. It happened with, uh, with, with Joshua. It happened with Saul. It happened with David. It happened with Solomon. It happened with Rehoboam. It happened with Jeroboam, with all of the kings, and it was this. It was a promise made by God to each of these individuals that if they would simply follow his will, if they would simply follow his commands, then God was going to take care of them. Notice Joshua chapter 1. I want to look at a couple of these. Joshua chapter 1, notice what he says here beginning in verse 4. Joshua has just taken the reins of leading the people uh, into the promised land. And certainly a daunting task, having to fill the shoes of Moses, having to lead a, a nation of a couple million people. But notice what, with this dialogue between him and God here in verse 4. God says, from, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. This is God speaking to Joshua. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Notice this, for then, for then, once all of these things has taken place, once you've done all of these things and you faithfully serve me, then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Notice 1 Samuel chapter 12, just a few pages over. 1 Samuel chapter 12, notice verse 14. This is talking to God, talking to Saul. You're about to take this great position. You've got a lot of authority here, a lot of, uh, a lot of influence. Here's what you need to do. Verse 14, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then... Then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Time and time and time again, we see God making this promise to his people. If you serve me, if you faithfully follow me, then I will be with you. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's a promise made by Jesus Christ that he's going to be with us. What confidence you and I can gain from that. How bold we can become because of this promise that Jesus has given to his people. 
Five things that make the Great Commission just that, great. Five things that I think are important for us to consider, and yet I think there's still a question that remains. As great as the Great Commission is, as wonderful, as spectacular, as amazing, as magnificent as it is, is it for us? Is it for you and I to obey and to implement in our everyday lives? Certainly a question I suppose we could ask out of ignorance, maybe out of, uh, out of curiosity, but certainly I think a question that is probably asked more often than not simply out of a laziness and perhaps out of an unwillingness uh, and unwant to do and to fully adhere to the commands of Jesus. So is it for me to obey? When I look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, I understand that the immediate audience is his disciples. He's talking about those who were with him, those who were present with him, but people who are not here today. I understand that. But I also understand that when I couple this great commission with other passages that I read about in the New Testament, I understand this is a command that certainly is for us today. I read passages like 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. Mark 16, 15 through 16, another rendition of the Great Commission, Jesus telling his people to go into all the world and to teach the gospel to every creature. Luke 24, verse 47, the repentance and remission of sins is to be preached among all nations, scripture after scripture, that emphasize this point of making sure that you and I are evangelistically minded. But not only that, I understand the language that Jesus used here. If you look at verse 19, his command to go and to teach and to baptize was a command that was directly given to the people who were there, the, the people who were right in front of him. But what was also involved in this entire command, verse 20, teaching them, who's the them, the people that they just baptized, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Well, Jesus, what did you just taught them? I had just taught them to go teach and to baptize. So the command to teach those who they had just baptized was to teach them that they were then to go to teach and to baptize. And guess who that also includes? It includes you and I today, doesn't it? That command doesn't stop when Matthew chapter 28, verse, uh, verse 20 stopped, did it? It goes all the way up into you and I today. We cannot get around, we cannot get away from the command by Jesus to go and to teach to our families, to our communities, to the world around us, you and I must evangelize. There's a song that we sometimes sing, and I think it's appropriate to read the lyrics to you. Swiftly we're turning life's daily pages. Swiftly the hours are changing to years. How are we using God's golden moments? Shall we reap glory? Shall we reap tears? Millions are groping without the gospel. Quickly, they'll reach eternity's night. Shall we sit idly as they rush onward? Haste, let us hold up Christ the true light. Souls that are precious, souls that are dying, while we rejoice, our sins are forgiven. Did he not also die for those lost ones? Then let us point the way into heaven. Into our hands the gospel is given, into our hands is given the light. Haste, let us carry God's precious message, guiding the erring back to the right. Brothers and sisters, it's not the great suggestion. It's not the great omission, but rather it is the great commission. And it is a command that you and I have been given by Jesus Christ himself to go into all the world and to teach the gospel to every creature. I hope that you and I take that very, very seriously. 
As we think about our influence among our communities, understanding that you and I can do all that we can, must do all that we can to be a shining light for Jesus Christ, to lead others to him, and ultimately, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, give all of the glory back to, back to our Father. Maybe you're here this morning, perhaps you haven't answered the gospel call, but maybe you want to. Maybe you want to become a part of the body of Christ, become a part of the family here at Roanoke. We'd love to assist you and help you in any way that we can. If you need uh, to come forward to repent of your sins, uh, to be baptized into water, that water representing Jesus' shed blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary, washing away your sins, you could go on your way out these doors this morning rejoicing, just like the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts chapter 8. Maybe you're here this morning, though, and perhaps you are a Christian, but maybe you haven't been answering the Great Commission's call. Maybe you haven't been as evangelistically minded as you need to be. Maybe you haven't been influencing your communities or maybe even influencing your brethren in the way that you need to be, and you know that that's the case. Perhaps it's been in a public form or fashion, and maybe you need to make things right with God, but also with your brothers and sisters know that you can come forward, repent of those things, we'll pray for you, and we'll do all that we can to help you, to encourage you. Maybe you're just here, and maybe you've been going through something very difficult in life, and perhaps you just need the reminder that God is there for you, God can help you, and that we as a family here at Roanoke will do all that we can to help you get through whatever it is that you're getting through. If you have a need this morning, won't you come? Together we stand in as we sing. Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.